It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tom Nimi. Tom, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Awesome. Sounds good. I've always wanted to be a superhero, Laban, so this is my chance. Well, fantastic. And I suppose my first question is going to be, what superhero powers would you have for Dr. Tom Nemi, the superhero? Well, you'd have to be able to fly. That'd be number one. And if I could have a couple, it'd be to heal. Well, magic healing powers, that'd be great. Ah, to heal yourself or to heal <laughs> Well, I, if I could heal others, I'd like to be able to use it on myself too, if required. <laughs> but um, yeah, that'd, that'd be the two that I'd choose, I reckon. Well, I just figured from your prolific career in karate that you might be nursing a few legacy um, joint pain or broken bones or whatever it might be. Did you manage well, to get funny you mentioned that. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, some of those... I guess I guess you'd call it high impact training and re- repetitive training over decades. It it doesn't always leave your body in in better condition. So I had um, I was plagued by rotator cuff injuries in my shoulders um, whenever I was training for for tournaments or, or or doing lots and lots of sparring and things like that. And um, my hips aren't great, but I, I actually feel like I've found a really good rhythm with with all of that physically. But um, it's um, it's being mindful of what those kind of legacy strains are. So there are actually are a few. Well, I, I hear you with the rotator cuff being a cricketer and diving on my either shoulder for all of my probably thirty years I've been playing there. So mm. I feel that pain. But karate is not the reason we had you on the show, Tom. What is the reason we had you on the show? What do you do? Well, you, you, you have to tell me that, but I, I reckon um, <laughs> it's got to do with um, my psychological work with the Healthy Minds program. Um, and uh, uh, I know you got in touch after hearing me um, a few weeks ago, and um, we do a lot of work um, actually globally now um, in the well area done. of preventive mental health strategy and psychological skills training. So I call myself a preventive psychologist. I'm actually a clinical psychologist by training. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I always say I'm probably the only person in the world with the job title preventive psychologist because I made it up um, and that's a good way to get your own job title. Uh, but I also I think I'm probably one of the few, if not the only, uh, a psychologist who works in applied settings for whom 100% of their work is about preventing problems and enhancing well-being as opposed to remediating problems. 
And, um, I, you know, for, for the typical clinical psychologist, 90% plus of their work is generally meeting someone at their lowest ebb and helping them recover. Um, so psychology has been a real late arrival with prevention. I mean, if you look at dentistry, for example, um, uh, most of the work I would suggest um, probably that the dental professionals do is preventive in nature. Um, and uh, But in psychology, it's it's been lagging a long way behind. Well, I have a psychologist to thank for a moment in my life five years ago, Tom, when I reached out to, through the Gambler's Helpline and got access to a psychologist for a year and a half for free through the Salvation Army. And that was a pivotal moment. You talk about, you know, their lowest ebb. Uh, she, her name was Lee, and she, in the first session, explained to me that a lot of the behaviour that I was exhibiting related to escapism behaviour that related to my childhood. And through beginning to understand that, I was able to go through this journey of healing, which is what I've been on for the last five years. So I'm especially grateful for the work that psychologists and counsellors do. I think you're really doing God's work and it must be incredibly challenging taking on the weight of other people's worlds day in, day out. Yeah, it can be. Um, it, it can be quite a burdensome, stressful job. I think for me it was it only ever really felt that way when I was really worried for a client, when I, when I felt that they were unsafe. Um, you have a natural empathy and that takes energy, of course, um, so there's just the usual kind of kind of fatigue that you'd get from sitting in that emotional space with someone for many hours a day. But usually for me, it didn't always kind of overflow into my personal life too much unless I had a client I was really, really concerned about, which thankfully wasn't all the time. Um, but, of course, one of the differences now with my career shift from clinical psychology to preventive psychology is that... Um, I don't have that kind of emotional fatigue most of the time. There's a different energy that you draw upon when you're conducting a workshop or giving a, a keynote presentation or something. That is a different kind of fatigue, but it's also very energising, I find it, um, to work with groups of people. So um, that's been one of the good things about changing direction a little bit in my career. Well, it looks like, uh, and I was fortunate enough to stumble across you uh, presenting to the ANZ where my fiance works and because of shutdown we're all in the house together and I heard this voice talking about mental health strategies and sure enough there was Dr Tom and I, uh, it's something that's very very close to my heart and, and I'm quite closely aligned with another guy Hugh Van Kylenberg who runs a resilience project I'm not sure whether you've had a chance to meet him or see much of his work I've heard I've heard of Hugh I haven't met him but um yeah it sounds like he does some great stuff yeah, he, he's mainly been, he started out as a, in schools uh, and he's been involved with sporting clubs. Where is the majority of your work focused these days? It's, uh, we work in schools and in uh, corporate settings. So it, the Healthy Minds program actually started out in schools. It was developed as a schools program. And then we adapted that for a corporate audience, um, which was always my intention. Um, and, uh teach pretty much the same stuff to both audiences. We just do it in a slightly different way. What are the types of things that you're teaching? We teach people 
some of the fundamental ingredients to having a healthy mind. And, um, you know, we're coming from a position of trying to keep healthy people healthy. So uh, for me, the, the, the concept is really psychological immunization. It's a, a non-drug immunization by, by teaching people concepts and skills that they can apply to their life to stay mentally healthy. And there's a heap of things that we teach. Uh, the first thing that we do is try to give people a really pragmatic and non-stigmatizing way of thinking about their mental health. And in fact, I prefer the word well-being when I talk about mental health because, you know, it's funny, we hear the phrase mental health and for many people that conjures images of mental ill health. So the, the phrase has come to represent its opposite. Yeah. And um, so one of the things that we need to do is think how can we make this knowledge accessible and engaging for people rather than their first thought being, what's wrong with me? Do I have a problem? Is this is this something that I should be attending or should be listening to? And so you can sidestep those assumptions by saying that we're talking about well-being because, in fact, true mental health is about more than just not being unwell and it's about more than just your mind. Um, so... We teach a framework that we call the well-being wheel, and it's um, it, it's a, a simple graphic that has six pieces of a pie, basically six segments to the wheel, and each of those segments is one core ingredient to having good mental health, um, and each of those segments is grounded in solid scientific evidence, but. What makes it accessible for people is that we don't present a list of symptoms and diagnoses. We present six factors that anyone can think about, can self-assess subjectively, and can use to strategize and, and, and manage and improve their well-being. And so I, th I think the first thing we do is we make it accessible and non-stigmatizing um, and easy to understand, but without we don't avoid the science. We want everything we do to be evidence-based and um, and that's really important. So that's where we start. And one of those six factors is psychological skills. And, and of all the six factors, that's the least well-understood factor. So the others are primary relationships. That's, uh, you know, it's unbelievable how often that is missed in interventions around mental health. Um, and we know through heaps of research and common sense that, um, that our connection to others is, is vital. Um, and it's, it's something I'm sure you could speak eloquently about. You've already mentioned your fiancé and your relationship, and I know it's something that's on your website. So that, that makes good sense to you, I'm sure. Um, Definitely. We can't really separate our biological needs and our physical health from our mental health. And this is another common kind of myth or misconception is that physical health is here, mental health is over here, and they're just, they're just separate. Well, we all know from experience that if we're not well slept, if we're not hydrated, if our, um, if our diet doesn't fit what our body needs then we're going to have a lower tolerance for emotion, uh, a poor ability to focus and concentrate. Um, and so biological needs is one of those segments. Um, exercise is another. Uh, so you could say that's a biological need, but we deliberately give it a whole segment for itself. And it doesn't sound very psychological, but anytime someone does vigorous exercise, they are engaging in a mental health strategy. 
because it has such a pervasive influence on things like mood, um, stress uh, management. Um, so, so that's crucial. Um, we've got psychological skills and then we've got um, two other segments. One is about balance. And so this is about having fun for fun's sake, having interests outside of our, our work or the, the, the serious stuff that we have to do, um, having a social life. Um, that's really important. So that's part of having balance. And then finally, we've got this big picture segment, which is about values and meaning and purpose. This is kind of what gets you out of bed in the morning, what keeps you going, even when things aren't going smoothly and helps you to push on and what gives you that deep-seated sense of contentment um, from living your life in a way that really fits with your most deeply held values. Um, and so there's six factors that I think anyone can relate to, and that's a good starting point for understanding what true mental health looks like. Well, of those six segments, there's a few of those that have been knocked on the head for the short term with regards to the, the lockdown and the, you know, everything else that's been happening in the last four months. Have you been able to adjust and pivot and come up with some temporary alternate strategies for what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we had to because um, typically our work has been in face-to-face training. Um, so, you know, all over the place, doing workshops, doing seminars, going to schools, going to companies, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so within the space of a couple of weeks, I, w- I was due to get on a plane on the Monday morning and the Saturday afternoon, the, the client um, in, in Western Australia um, had to call and say, we've got to figure out another way to do this because you're... Um, you, you shouldn't travel and people are staying home. And it was all, it all happened sort of pretty, pretty quickly. The, the, the kind of oh shit moment for me was it was the mor- morning of Friday practice of the Formula One Grand Prix in March. And when, when that got called off at the last, last minute, um, it was like, okay, this, this is pretty serious. And um, we had, you know, huge numbers of bookings in our calendar that just disappeared overnight. And so for us, the task was, well, what do we do? And yeah, pivot's the word, isn't it? So we had to switch tack and think, how can we do it? Now, of course, technologies like we're using today have just really opened up heaps of opportunities. Shout out Zoom. (laughs) Shout out Zoom. So, and the happy upside is that we're no longer constrained uh, through geographical limitations and, and our clients aren't constrained by the thinking of, oh, well, they're in a different city, a different state, a different country. Maybe we wouldn't work with them. Have we got to arrange this travel? Well, when everyone realises that actually you can communicate and teach pretty effectively most of the time through this kind of medium, then it actually lifts some of those barriers. So, um, And we created some, um, you know, webinar resources Um for dealing with COVID-19. You know, we had some of our biggest clients contact us and say, well, we know you teach people how to deal with difficult things and how to prevent problems and manage emotions. Well, this is really required now. How can you package up your healthy mind skills in a way that fits for this current context? And so we did that. And um, that's led to another whole heap of, of work. And um, I found that in this uh, business, if we can create engaging content that helps people, then work begets work because 
um, people connect with the ideas, they like it, they see value in it, and then they tell their colleagues or their friends or whoever, and and, and it just flows on really naturally. So we've been doing a lot of web-based work, and um, I think that's going to continue now. And what about your background, Tom? What about your upbringing and your childhood? What allowed you to get into a, a position where you're doing what you're doing now? Yeah, well, um, good question. I, I grew up in um, Adelaide in the eastern suburbs um, with uh, my mum and dad and my two brothers. I, I'm, I'm a triplet, which um, wow. uh, I usually <laughs> find interesting, but for me it was just normal. I didn't really have a sense of anything that that different about it. It was just that my two brothers are the same age and we were in the same year level at school and there was always someone to beat up or to play with. So, Are you um, identical or...? No, no, not identical. Um, so, um, yeah, I think uh, that was an I- interesting thing for other people. I guess for me it just meant, you know, there was always someone about to hang out with or argue with or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so I suppose that um, was a perhaps a formative part of my, my upbringing. And, um, but really for me it, it was not part of my plan to be a psychologist um, initially. Uh, I actually wanted to be a racing driver and um, uh, dedicated an enormous amount of time and energy from about the age of 10 um, to about when I was um, sort of 17 and had to realise I had to go for a plan B. That was that was the thing. Wow. What kind of cars were you racing? I raced sprint carts. Um, so when I was about 10 years old, I announced to my family that I was going to be a professional racing driver. Um, they thought it was a phase, but I started doing odd jobs and um, and, and saving up pocket money, and um, it really became an obsession, actually. And um, I distinctly remember one of my brothers saying to me after I was just before I bought my first racing go kart, and I, I was probably boring the hell out of my family talking about it again. And he said to me, "Tom, you know you're never going to be a race driver. You're never going to." do this so so why don't you stop talking about it come on you're always going on about it well a week later i purchased my first secondhand crappy old racing go-kart that i was so excited and so thrilled and and i went racing and um i i i was frustrated because i i i thought that with my determination and my passion i could overcome any obstacle but um, I realised that when I was racing against blokes who had the latest Italian chassis and, um, you know, lot big budgets and all the help they could imagine that it was going to be a little bit tough. But, gee, it was fun. I have it to was- ask, what are you driving these days? I drive a, a, a pretty old BMW 3 Series um, that, that I love because it handles like a racing car. It's probably in in road car terms. It's the closest I've come to to something that handles like a race car. It's not very powerful, the little two liter one that I've got, but um, uh, but I I, I love them. And uh, so I actually did test Formula Ford race cars, and I spent a year. I negotiated with my parents. I said, "Look, I'm serious about this, um, but I've got to get sponsorship, and it's going to take me time." And um, they were pretty devastated they wanted me to go to um uni and i said well i'll apply to uni but i'm going to defer it and um the consensus agreement was that i had a year to make good on this um dream 
and I, I, I was so I was 17, 18 years old, and I was sending out marketing proposals to big companies saying you should sponsor me and we're gonna we can do all this corporate entertainment at the track for you and it's gonna be great for your for your customers and your staff. And um yeah that I would occasionally get these really polite two-line letters back saying, you know, thank you, but you know, we're committed to this, that and the other. And so I spent all my money um literally testing and, and practicing in Formula Ford race cars. And um, at the end of that year, I um, uh, I took a, a casual job at my local service station um, and I, my job was cleaning the bathrooms on the weekend. Um, it was a truck stop, actually. It was it was not directly local <laughs> to my house, but it was a little way. And so wow. uh, my job was 6 o'clock <laughs> on the Sunday morning to go and clean the dunnies. And I remember... I remember having the the mop and the hot water and 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 the, the the stench and I had to do it and I wasn't complaining about it but I remember in that moment thinking well I've, I'm gonna have to put my all into something else because I want to I want to create something and I want to I've got all this energy I've got all this determination and maybe I'm not going to be a racing driver which was a painful realization um so it was around that time that I went to university. I took up my offer to do a Bachelor of Psychology with Honours at Flinders University and I took up karate and uh, I just trained my heart out in martial arts and I started studying and that was the beginning of this path that's um, led me to where I am now. Well, what an extraordinary uh, series of events for you to end up doing what you're doing now. And you've got another feather to, to, to your bow as well, Tom. You're a, an author and you wrote a book, Apples for the Mind, or at yes. least one at least one book. You might have written some more that I'm not sure about. Or not Just aware one of. at this stage. Yeah. What, what's the book all about? The book is me really putting all of the psychological knowledge that I've gained and that I teach into one resource that could go out into the world. And I sometimes talk about an economics principle called the multiplier effect. Um, I learned about this in year 11 or year 12 economics, and it's a principle that economists look at as a measure of consumer spending, but it's a really powerful analogy for interpersonal influence. And the multiplier effect basically says if somebody spends 500 bucks and buys a, an iPad or a laptop or whatever, and you look at what happens to that money, the person who sold you the iPad maybe saves 50 bucks and then goes and spends 450. And slowly some of that money will be taken out of the economy in savings, but a lot of it will be onward spent. And if you were to follow that spending, you might observe that that initial spending of $500 led to perhaps $2,000 of actual spending. But that's a lot of that spending occurs far outside the awareness of the person who first spent 500 bucks. Um, and for me, that's a really powerful analogy, the multiplier effect of our influence in the world, that we all have an effect that goes far beyond what we ever get to see or whatever we could measure. And it, it gives you a sense of personal responsibility uh, that, you know, everything, every choice has an opportunity cost, Every everything we do potentially matters or may affect someone else. What we what we teach someone, what we pass on is going to maybe shape their behaviour or how they interact with others in the future. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, that was just something that really um, uh, appealed to me with the idea of writing a book is that I could create this knowledge that I knew was helpful for many people and um, put it out there such that someone I would never otherwise meet might consume that knowledge and might benefit from it. And, in fact, about um, probably about six or seven months out from the book's release, I saw a review on a, on a website um, and it was someone, I, I think from his name he was in France or, or Canada uh, and it said this was probably the best and most useful uh, self-help book I've ever read. And wow. For me, that was like, uh, that was just awesome because that's exactly what I had in mind when I was, you know, staying up. Like, it's a real pain in the ass writing a book. Like it, it takes a lot of time and effort and there's so many times you think, oh, I've got all these other things to do. So it took a real drive to do that. But that was the moment that I was uh, hoping for when I was writing the book. And so it, it's awesome to have seen some people say um, and, yeah, I've had many people since then say that it's, it's really helped them. So, um, yeah, I'm glad I did it. Well, I mean, congratulations. It's uh, I have just written my very first book over the COVID break. Congratulations. Called, called Bet On You. Thank you very much because I was a degenerate gambler and, you know, along the same principle, uh, if it's able to impact one person and to help them in their journey, it's worth it. And and I'm not sure how you found it, Tom, but it was an incredibly cathartic experience for me. Did you find that when you were writing it? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether catharsis is the word for my experience, but it, it felt really good to have these these principles that were, were valuable to me and this knowledge that was valuable to me down in in one place, and and yeah, it, it is. It, it it does refine your mental and emotional energy to think through that and think through what do I want to pass on and, and what is most important for other people to know from my experience. Um, but but I can imagine it, it, it's also a therapy of sorts. Um, I don't know if that's what you found, but but writing about it and, and thinking through what you've learned. Yeah, I think now that you now you frame it like that, I think because of the nature of the type of story, it was stories of my life interwoven with these attributes that I was given from my parents and key figures in my life that have helped me in this sort of latter part of my life and in this journey that I've been going down. Um, stories when I was six, you know, and, and when I was at school, and some of those stories involved reconnecting with the teacher involved, and some amazing. Uh, touching moments, um, particularly with one teacher as well that was only a, a, a substitute teacher at the time and her name was lost and then they were able to find her and able to reconnect and I was able to read her a chapter of the book of this amazing impact she had in my life um, and a, a really touching um, part of the whole process for me. So I, I feel very blessed and, and now I've got at least one thing to include in my legacy and it sparked an interest in writing another book, which I think will be titled Become Your Own Superhero. Um, what it'll be about exactly, I don't know just yet, but there's just so much uh, that can go in there that I think can help other people through my own you know, challenges. 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I, it's interesting you mentioned uh, teachers because uh, in my book I mention a, a teacher and just a couple of brief interactions even that I had with him as a 15-year-old that helped shape my self-concept. And I saw myself differently because of the feedback that I was given from that that teacher, Mr. Grant. And um, uh, it, it, it goes, goes to show how powerful um, other people reflecting ourselves back to us can be. Um, yeah, it's, that's awesome. And, again, multiplier effect, isn't it? Like for those teachers and your substitute teacher, unless you were able to track them down and read the chapter and talk about that meaning and influence, they might not otherwise know that that influence of theirs has gone out into the world and had that effect. Oh, it was an, an extraordinary experience. She had no clue. She remembered me um, as a child. She didn't remember the incident. She gave me $30 on my birthday um, because mum was, the family was broke and I was going to have nothing. And um, she asked me what I was doing for the weekend. I said, it's my birthday. I got no money. Gave me 10, what was 10% of her net weekly wages and kept it from her husband and the other faculty because it was very frowned upon uh, practice. Wow. And, and it, that, that, my, I, like that story has stuck with me and it's shaped my own giving and my own generosity. And, it's, and I often go back and I go, oh, you know, all right. And um, it's, you know, had a profound effect on probably hundreds or thousands of people that have been impacted from my own experience. So that, that cum- cumulative uh, or compounding interest effect or the, you know, it's so powerful. And yeah. this is the great thing about the guests that have come on the show so far, Tom, is there was a guy that I read a book called, um, his name's Steve Seabolt. He hasn't come on the show, but he wrote a book called 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class. And he talks about the difference between people that are upper class that come from a place of fear and scarcity and people that are world class that come from this real love and abundance. And they they understand those principles that you're talking about. And they, they understand that by coming on a show, on a podcast that at the time didn't have that huge a subscriber base, that there'll be some benefit that they'll get out of it. And that has happened time and time again, whereas some of the people that haven't come on that are lesser known and that have asked for large fees, which is, and I'm not holding anything against them for doing that, they just weren't the right people for the show at that time. And it's it's led to some extraordinary connection making, and um, you know we had uh, Mark Shulman, Pink's drummer, come on the show, right? And and Mark Shulman's writing his next book, and he does a lot of work around uh, mindset strategies and some similar stuff to what you've been doing as well. And he's paired up with a psychiatrist to write his next book, and and he interviews uh, people like well known people that have got great mindsets and takes a lot of their strategy stuff. And then I interviewed Justin Langer, the Australian cricket coach. And I was talking to Justin Langer after the podcast about this book that Mark was writing. And turns out Justin Langer's the world's biggest pink fan, right? And so they've now connected and Mark's going to interview Justin for his book. Yeah, and I wow. just think, like, like, when would that ever have happened otherwise? <laughs> it's yeah, like, isn't that fantastic? And yeah, he might, awesome. you know, and Justin Langer's bucket list is to have Pink around at his house for a barbecue. He's got four daughters. 
that might happen now. Yeah, wow, that's cool. You know what I mean? So is there any examples of that that have happened in your life that you're aware of that you can share with us? Um, oh, just um, just sort of connections and continuity of, of bits and pieces. Um, oh, for me, it's been, um, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a web of inspiration of, of people in my own life and then passing that on to others and hopefully having an impact on them. Um, uh, so, you know, in terms of well-known people and successful people being an inspiration, um, uh, I had the opportunity to meet um, Mark Webber when, um, who's only about 18 months older than me when we were both teenagers and I, I was racing go-karts. He was racing Formula Holdens and Formula Ford and um, uh, spent uh, a bit of time with him and, um uh I remember um saying to uh to my mum, um, I think he's gonna be the next Australian in Formula One. And ten years later he was. Wow. Um and that that kind of inspiration. And then um I was at, speaking at a conference about three years ago, um and uh one of the people at the back of the room who works in a um a health and um the health industry um was Mark Webber's personal trainer um, through the start of his Formula One career. So um, just amazing. I put the photo of myself and Mark up on the screen. I was telling an anecdote about my failed racing driver career and <laughs> I said, who's this? And he said, it's Mark Weber." and um, we drew the connection there. So it's, it is it is a small world and you never know where that influence or inspiration is going to go and you never know where it's going to come from. So, yeah, it's awesome. It is. Yeah, it is awesome. And And what's... What's the long-term plan for Dr. Tom Damey? Mate, I think um, there are a few phases. Um, I've I, I sort of, um, it's funny because my professional life is very purpose-driven. I feel absolutely compelled to do the work that I do. Um, and uh, I, I, I've tuned into that and I've realised that my influence as a psychologist is well, my time and energy is much better spent than being a racing driver and perhaps that's why it's meant to have worked out this way. We've been able to impact thousands of people through what we teach in the Healthy Minds program and I'm immensely proud of that. I, I want to see that continue and to go as far as we can. We're currently looking at um, technology vehicles to um, broaden our, our message and engage more people um, in uh I guess getting the benefit of this psychological immunization, learning these psychological skills of healthy thinking and self-compassion and challenging unhelpful perfectionism and um, uh, understanding emotions and where they come from and why we have them. Um, we, we give people the answers to those questions and um, we know from the feedback we get that they find it helpful. So I want to keep doing more of what's working basically, but I do foresee another phase um, in in my professional life. Um, uh, I don't know exactly when or where, but I think that it's interesting. I, I often think about what really matters in life. What's the big picture? What's what's the biggest influence that that, that I could have in a, a positive way in in my life? And um, you know, people talk a lot about technology and biotechnology and artificial intelligence and how important that is to the world. But I've sort of asked myself, well, what next? What, what's the next bigger picture? What's 
what's the next frontier for science and, and humanity. Uh, and I think it's the exploration of consciousness. I, I think it's really understanding more about our real nature. So part of that is psychological, but it almost becomes parapsychological when you think of it in that that um, sort of almost metaphysical terms. And um, I, I might be betraying my scientific training and scientific roots here talking about that, but uh, it's an interesting area. And I think if we move beyond uh, our routine thinking, um, there's there's a whole lot of interesting areas to explore. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like at this stage, but um, that that could be something that is a path I'll go down eventually. Have you done any research or spent any time around the importance of nutrition with regards to um, mental, like, yeah, well-being, like really strong well-being? Yeah, I, I think clearly it's a really important component. Um, I'm not well-educated in the... Um, specifics of nutrition and dietetics and all of that. I'm interested in it. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that there can be so many um, varied views and quite passionate views about um, what is helpful for people. So, um, uh, and, you know, I know that the psychologist Jordan Peterson has a meat-only diet and he believes that it's, you know, virtually cured of his depression, he says. Um, so he's a psychologist talking about a nutritional strategy to resolve a mental health issue, which is fascinating to me. Um, and you're a subscriber to that view. Is is that right, Laban? That's kind of a meat diet is your thing? Yeah, well, look, it was kind of a loaded question, I suppose, but um, it's not just me. There, There's a huge community that, that Jordan... Because I, I was a fan of Jordan Peterson long before I knew about his carnival diet. I love that 12 yeah. Rules for Life book. It really helped me a lot. His daughter has um, is a strict carnivore for autoimmune reasons. And I cured an autoimmune disease, an incurable autoimmune disease at that, uh, via the elimination of plants. Now, this, the, yeah. the reason why it seems to be so effective at improving mental health is that it's all related to gut health in some way, shape, or form. And it seems to be uh, when you eliminate the things that are aggravating a disrupted gut microbiome, it allows the, the body to heal. And I'm a really, I, I've witnessed firsthand my body healing from extraordinary things by looking after it. Now, I, I, have, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't uh, put anything in my body unnecessarily um, and haven't done for a while now. And I've noticed a profound difference when I combine that with that exercise that you're talking about, mm -hmm. high intensity stuff. And I'm a distance runner. And when I fast and then I break a fast with a really beautiful piece of meat or I, I had liver and eggs for breakfast, beef liver. And there seems to be a link between getting lots of B12 or the B vitamins in there, strong iron levels, um, you know, vitamin D from the sun. When you, it's it's a very holistic type of thing, and I've become quite primal in the way that I approach living, um, like caveman esque at times. You know, what did our caveman forefathers do? And yeah. when I when I when I stick to it, I feel like Iron Man. 
And and it's no mistake that the last two years have been the most productive of all the 40 years I've been on the planet. And I've achieved more in two than I have probably combined. And physically, I've never been stronger and faster and more youthful looking for my age. So I don't know. I find it really, really interesting. I think that sometimes the most easy answers are the most um, simple answers. And, you know, clearly that's not the case with, with well-being and mental health. But for me and a lot of people that I'm associated with, they are experiencing very similar stuff. So it's, it's a really fascinating area. Just, it, just my it's hugely fascinating. And, it, and it's fascinating that for some people they have such dramatic results. And it's also fascinating to me that you might have someone who says, well, um, I'm, I'm a vegan and that is the thing that has created my health. And they'll speak passionately about that. And then you'll have other people who um, uh, through, through fasting and, and, and time-restricted eating say, well, that's, that's the thing that's made a huge difference for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't speak with any authority on any of it, but I can say that if people find the right thing for them, then that is th- that slice of the well-being will, that part of their biological needs, if it's met, that it has all these well-being benefits for them. So for me, I've learned that um, uh, time-restricted eating, um, to a certain degree, uh, I feel better, and I feel like my gut's going better. And I've—it's it, almost like um, uh, it, it's true empiricism. We, we, we're each an experiment of one, aren't we? And, and so one, yeah. It, it's probably a matter of us all seeking out. Well, what should I try? And and. The data is how you feel, your energy, um, all, all of those things, your body's performance, your mood. And so um, uh, we've all got these many variables acting within our life at any one time. But if, if you can keep most of them relatively stable and change that one thing and see what it does for you, then that's being a scientist with your own body, isn't it? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm interested to explore some of those other things to see if I can fine tune that, that segment a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, um, there's another component as well. That's quite interesting. The introduction of seed oils into modern, uh, diet, which has only really come about in the last hundred years, but more so since the dietary guidelines in 1960 odd were updated to demonize animal fat, which has now been debunked. And so they had to replace the animal fat with something else. So they started using seed oils and they think that this, the introduction of seed oils has been the single greatest destructing uh, contributor to modern health in terms of chronic health. And of course, when your body's inflamed, which seems to be the underlying uh, associated, you know, dysfunction, that's when, when everything goes off kilter, including your mental health. So it's, um, and, and, and the, I don't, I don't deep fry in any of that stuff. I, I use ghee and tallow if I'm going to cook in anything, I don't really deep fry anything anymore. Um, cause I've spent a long time researching what I've been eating to make sure that I'm not going to hurt myself. Um, and the more I eliminate, the better I feel. And, and recently, I just cut caffeine out after a 20-year hardcore addiction. Um, nine days I've been off it, Tom, and the wow. first five were fucking brutal. <laughs> I'll tell you <laughs> right now. Um, I don't know. Are you a coffee drinker? Yeah. 
Have you ever gone? Yeah, I think that'd be tough. That'd be tough. Yeah. Well, it was undermining my sugar cravings, and like something like the last of my addictions, you know. And I was, and the only reason I know it was doing that is because since I've eliminated it, the cravings have dissipated, and it has something to do with affecting the hormones, like the ghrelin and the 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 hunger and satiety hormones and all this other stuff that again sort of linked to the gut health and I and I feel better my mood's more stable and my muscle soreness is gone you know like just really innocuous things and I was drinking you know four or five long blacks a day so it wasn't like I was a a lightweight caffeine <laughs> but yeah I could talk about this stuff all day but um, you know having having strong uh, like good well being has been the single greatest contributor to my success, if you call it that, uh, mm. over the last four years, but in particular the last two. So it makes good sense and it's it's why we say to all of our clients and all of our workshop attendees that, you know, if you accept that well-being and performance go hand in hand, and and, and we argue strongly that they do. In fact, we, we just talk about it as a continuum. When you're unwell, whether it's from a, a mental health point of view or, or, or all the ingredients to well-being that we've talked about, you are, are not going to function well, whether it's as an employee, as a partner, as a parent, whatever. Um, and so much of the medical way of thinking around mental health sort of compartmentalises the mental part of it and it looks at the bottom half of the continuum. It says, well, we've got to identify symptoms and problems and we get someone back to the middle with therapy. But in actual fact, we can get to the other end. And many people don't think about this other half of mental health, which is what does it look like and what does it feel like to be very well? Um, and what, what does it mean to be very mentally healthy? And when I put that question out to people, we get answers like, well, you'd have more energy, you'd have more motivation, you'd have be more clear thinking, you make better decisions, you tolerate emotions better, you uh, increase your willingness to take on challenges. And these, these are all high-performance characteristics and they're also the product of being well. So, um, you know, we, we say to our corporate clients, if you accept that well-being and performance go hand in hand, why on earth would you do a performance review with your staff without also doing a well-being review? Um, and, and we created a tool for uh, managers and leaders to have well-being conversations with their teams um, because, uh, you know, this, this will become the routine part of management practice in the future because it, it is so fundamentally true. And it's not about saying everyone needs perfect well-being. Um, we don't say, well, if you're not 10 out of 10 on each of those six factors on the well-being wheel, then you, you're not there yet. Um, we say that it's it's a bit like, um, well, I was I, I was doing a, a corporate uh, keynote at the start of the year and, and I was on a panel with uh, Mark Bickley, the, the footballer from the Adelaide Crows Footy Club. And I, I said to Mark, you know, when you had your one of your premiership winning seasons, and if you had a fabulous preseason and you guys were fit and healthy and you're on it and you're ready to go, you didn't get to round one and say, well, we're fit now, we can stop. You know, it, it, it's an ongoing process maintaining fitness, well-being, health performance. It's, there's not an end point to it. So I say to people, you don't have to be 10 out of 10, but if you could be a seven on all six factors, then you have a really solid foundation. 
And, uh, you know, the analogy of a, a wheel comes to play here because if you're, you've got three nines out of 10 and you've got three twos out of 10, that's, not a, that's a flat spot. That's, that's not yeah. a well-functioning wheel, is it? So consistency is really key. And um, it's it's an ongoing thing. It's something we've got to got to work at and keep going. But if we can, um, if we have a framework and a way of thinking about it, then we're much more likely to be able to self manage it. And our aim is with all of our um, graduates, if you like, all of our workshop participants and school program participants, we want them to emerge as self managers of their well being. Um, and, and so often people see, particularly in the psychological area, they see it as something that's esoteric or it's intangible or, you know, they, they're almost fatalistic about it. I hope I have good mental health. Uh, I hope I do, but they don't really think, how could I create that? And so the, one of the most satisfying and rewarding things for me in our work at Healthy Minds is we give people that framework for thinking about it. And then in particular with the psychological stuff that is, is least well known is we give them a toolkit. Um, so it, it, it is accessible then. We can create good mental health for ourselves. It's not about hoping and waiting to see if we have a problem and hoping we can bounce back from it. We create the conditions where we're less likely to slide backwards on that continuum. And if we're proactive and we treat it like a project, we treat it like our physical fitness, we can get to that high-functioning end. Um, and uh, that's really satisfying when people implement that and we see the benefits for them. I love that, Tom. I, I really do. I, it's, you know, one of the things I was going to say is that the the moment, the key moment in my life, I think, was when I figured out that it's up to me to take control of my life and no one else, you know, was a huge moment. It's It's up to you to get strong and fit and to do your own research on food to make sure that the food that you're buying off the shelf is actually really good for you. Don't take everything on face value all the time or any of the time for that matter until you know. Uh, and when you start going down that route, I think you become a lot more empowered, I feel, like certainly in control of my own destiny, whereas I was just, you know, going like a, a skyrocket you know, with a broken stem, just any, any which direction. Mm. And that, that for me has been a real, real catalyst. Mm. So I, I really identify with the, with the things that you're talking about there. Tom, I'm, I'm very respectful of your time. Is there anything that you would like to, to finish on before we wrap this up today? Well, actually just your point that you've just made there, Laban, around realizing that it was up to you actually for me sparks, um, uh, a uh, a quote that I often refer to in our, our program, one of the things that we teach is the importance of self-compassion. And uh, this has been shown through our research at Flinders University as well as research around the world to be a major predictor of good mental health. And maybe a, a good place for us to wind up is for me to tell you a story about how I first um, inadvertently stumbled upon the concept of, of self-compassion and relying on myself um, and how that's now translated to what we teach. And I'm going to find uh, here for uh, your listeners and viewers a little um, uh, a quote that um, uh, I um, refer to a lot. And this goes back to when I was in high school and I remember I went through a, a week or, or more, I went through a, a, a a period of time where I felt quite emotionally flat and disconnected from my friends and 
you know, adolescence I think is is pretty challenging at the best of times. But I distinctly remember walking home from school one day and as I was walking along, it felt like I was going really uphill, even though I wasn't really. It just felt like I was walking through molasses. And I got home and I remember I threw down my school bag, I trudged to the couch and I turned on the TV. Now, I didn't have any healthy minds skills back then, so my strategy was just distraction. I just distract myself. So I turned on the TV and instead of coming onto one of the commercial TV stations, what appeared was um, it, the TV for some reason was tuned into like a community TV station. And like Channel it had 31 this, or something. Well, something like that. It was something <laughs> like that. And it had a, a man reading from a book. And I thought this looks incredibly boring and I went to change the channel. Uh, but just as I was about to change that channel, in that exact moment, uh, I stopped because I heard uh, the man read this. You do not need to be loved, not at the cost of yourself. The single relationship truly central and crucial in a life is the relationship to the self. It's rewarding to find someone whom you like, but it's essential to like yourself. It's quickening to recognise that someone is a good and decent human being, but it is indispensable to view yourself as acceptable. It's a delight to discover people who are worthy of respect and admiration and love, but it's vital to believe yourself deserving of these things. For you cannot live in someone else. You cannot find yourself in someone else. And of all the people you will know in a lifetime, you are the only one that you will never leave nor lose. To the question of your life, you are the only answer. To the problems of your life, you are the only solution. I later tracked that down. The man was reading from a really old book called Advice from a Failure by a lady called Joe Cordaire. And I tracked down the book years later. Um, but in that moment, it felt like it was speaking to me because I realised that I was critical and judgmental and hard-hearted of myself in a way that I wasn't to other people. And Joe Cordaire doesn't use the phrase self-compassion, but I think that's exactly what she's talking about. And it occurred to me, I'm stuck with myself. I can't break up with myself. I can't run away from myself, I, you know, and we're all in that position. So when we realise that, it begs the question, am I going to be an inner ally? Am I going to treat myself fairly and kindly and with encouragement and kindness and forgiveness the same way I would treat somebody I really cared about? Or am I going to be more harsh and hard-hearted? And it was really a, a game changer. It completely changed the, the frame of, of things for me. And years later at Flinders University, I was thinking about, well, what about other people? What can we teach them that's kind of like that lesson that I learned? And that was when we uncovered the, the research into self-compassion, which is vastly more important than self-esteem. You know, we've all been told we've got to feel good about ourselves. We've got to evaluate ourselves as better than everyone else. You know, we've got to make kids have high self-esteem. Well, it didn't really work. The assumption was that if people feel good enough about themselves, they won't get anxious or depressed. But it didn't work. 
And uh, we now know self-esteem is moderately correlated with narcissism. So it's possible to feel too good about yourself. <laughs> you know, like it's not a bad thing. There are some good things from it, but you could feel too good about yourself and feel entitled. So self-compassion isn't about that. It's not about judging myself as better or not as good. Self-compassion totally accepts our common humanity as imperfect people, but it just says I'm going to treat myself kindly and, and fairly and, I'm, I, and, and that's going to be how I, um, how I relate to, to things. And it's, uh, it's immensely powerful. It has been for me and it's one of the reasons we teach it to other people. It's brilliant, Tom. It really is. It's fantastic. And I just wanted to, to say a massive thank you to you and, and for donating your generous time today and sharing some really powerful stuff that I know that our, our audience will take uh, and, and get some value from at some point. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tom Nimi. Thanks very much, Laban. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-S dot com.